0: g'day and welcome to the sea creatures podcast a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal our guests range from marine biologists underwater photographers citizen scientists scuba divers and anyone with an intense passion for marine life my name's Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is geographer, ecologist, and eel aficionado, Malcolm Johnson, and we're going to be talking all about freshwater eels. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on.
0: No worries. It's a pleasure. So tell us first, before we jump into the world of freshwater eels, how you kind of got a passion for freshwater eels or how it came about, because it's, it's an unusual marine species to be obsessed with. Well, not obsessed,
1: sorry, being aficionado yeah. of. I would say obsession is pretty spot on for me. I think from my perspective, any, as soon as you start to learn any facts about freshwater eels, it's hard not to become obsessed. And that's, you know, hopefully you will hear that by the end of the, this episode. For me personally, it might start to explain that there's freshwater eels all over the planet, right? So, you know, Australia has two different freshwater eels. America has a freshwater eel, Europe has a freshwater eel, and there's, you know, 15 other freshwater eels across the globe. So it's kind of, you know, a very unique species in that regard. For me personally, my passion came about, uh, I guess, almost 10 years ago now. I was working in outdoor education. So I was teaching kids essentially year three till 10 about ecosystems, the natural environment in the United States. And so we were taking kids out into swamps. We were taking kids out on boats and we were just teaching them about the world around them. And one of the lessons that we had is we'd throw a net into the water, secretly catch a freshwater eel because we didn't want the kids to see it first. You'd tuck it into a bucket and then the kids would open that bucket reach their hand inside without seeing, and get to touch an eel for the first time, not knowing what they were touching. And eels are really slimy. Their body is completely covered in mucus, very much the same type of mucus we have in their nose. There's lots of um, interesting physiological reasons for that. But you can imagine, like, being a young kid, putting your hand in, feeling this slimy, snake-like thing in a bucket. You kind of freak out. The kids go a little crazy. And then there was the opportunity, as a teacher, to then tell the entire eel life story, which, for me... Once I learned it, I just was completely enamored. I found this species to be something that I I just couldn't not think about on a day to day basis. Uh, so much so that you know, ten years later, I've you know looked at eels all over the world. I've you know written some book chapters about it. And coming to Tasmania, where I am now, I essentially picked up a hobby to study the eels here more than everyone else ever has. They're a species that even though Plato wrote about eels you know thousands of years ago and numbers of scientists across the years have kind of explored them uh, there's still tons and tons of mysteries about eels still out there both local eels like Tasmania's eels as well as e- uh, freshwater eels more broadly. So, I think as a species, for me, it's the fact that there's all these mysteries just keep bringing me in, and every single time a new bit of information comes out, which could happen tomorrow, could happen in 50 years, uh, I'm there excited uh, and ready to learn about it.
0: Yeah, because they are such a mystery. And before we jump into exactly what an eel, a freshwater eel, is, like, I just have to ask. So, kids put their hand in the bucket and they don't bite? Like, that's not a concern? Or, like, they're tame? Or, Tell us, what, like, how you deal with it.
1: <laughs> I think it, it, it's funny because I hear stories from people all the time, and they talk about eels, and many of those stories are like, oh, they come me, bit my toes, and things like that. Eels are very curious. They're an exceptionally curious creature. Um, they're quite charismatic once you get to know them a little more. They're not aggressive. They're very rarely aggressive. And in the wild, and you think about, like, a lot of sea creatures, aggressiveness comes with either defending territory or protecting young, often, like, eggs and things like that. Eels... They don't give birth on land when you would most likely see them, so often they're just coming up to see like what's what. They are carnivorous, so they do eat meat, but they wouldn't typically like eat a finger or a toe or even take a, a, a real bite out of it. The exception being is when they're in their reverse migratory pattern, returning to the open water, which we'll get more into, then they start to have this psychological, physiological change in their bodies that make them a bit more like i have to do this thing no matter what but i i would say it's very unlikely for an eel to truly like take a a bite um and it's like going to a fish spa right if you've ever been to a fish spa like they're nibbling on your little dead skin you know they have little tiny teeth i would be hard pressed to find someone who's actually been legit legitimately bitten by an eel though that being said if you've ever seen a full-size eel at its peak age which you know they can get up to 50 years old before they die they can be you know four, five, six meters long, this, you know, the size of a log, I personally wouldn't want one of those t- trying to take a bite out of me just for fun. But yeah, we were not too concerned about that. I don't think we'd ever had a case of a kid being bit, but yeah, I guess it's a it's a risk one is willing to take for the eels.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I I just already feel like eels are a little bit cuter because you look at a picture of an eel and like, they're a bit intimidating, but... Your description's already making me kind of want to like, yeah, like, you know, give one a hug. So tell tell us what exactly a freshwater eel is, how they're different to a normal eel, and just kind of describe, if no one's ever seen an eel, like, how would you describe one?
1: Yeah, so they are snake-like. I think if you kind of put them in a lineup with some snakes... They would look very snaky, but they are a fish, so they are a ray-finned fish, so they have pectoral and dorsal fins um, on their sides and their back. Uh, They have usually a slightly elongated face, obviously there's 18, 19 different um, extant species at the moment, so ones that are not in extinct. They have that similar characteristics. They have the bicoloration that most fish have, where it's light on the bottom and darker on the top. You know, They do have gills, but they do have the ability to um, breathe air outside of water, um, 15% of that usually, but it can go up to 50% of the oxygen is being taken in just through the air rather than Using the process, the gill process.
0: How how does that work? If they don't have, if they've got gills but they don't have lungs, how do they breathe air? That's really crazy.
1: Yeah. So, cutaneous respiration is kind of like a really weird feature that some species, fish species, have, which is just. It's the process of kind of like this transfer through their scales. So they are a scaled fish, which is also really surprising when you see and touch them, is they do not feel like they're covered in scales, but they're just like much smaller scales than a traditional fish mice might have. And those scales are completely covered in this mucus, and the mucus is part of that process. Like they need that mucus in order to do that uh, cutaneous respiration, where they're bringing that air in. I think there's still a lot of you know mystery and science behind that works and why it changes. So if they're you know if they're in water, it's only fifteen percent, but if they're on land, it can be up to fifty percent. Like that's pr- very very unique to to eels, as far as I know.
0: And so you say like on land, are we talking about like? them actually crossing land or we 're talking about in freshwater rivers, or how does that work?
1: yes, uh, so they can they have the ability to cross land there 's tons of amazing stories over the years, some of the ones that I was hearing about in the in the u s that were coming out of the Europe, so the European eel, which is I, I believe Anguilla anguilla, so it 's the double named eel there 's stories of how you know hundreds of years ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, probably up to a thousand years ago where Someone on their property in, let's say, the UK, they had a nice little stone wall. And the eels, a huge migratory group, so when they migrate back to the ocean, so they're born in the ocean and come come to the land, when they're migrating back to the ocean, they'll usually go in groups, um, typically. And in they have to maintain some sort of moisture, so they like going over like mossy land and things like that. And if there's not a lot of mossy land, they'll kind of clumped together to keep the, their mucus kind of keeping that moisture. And there's, you know, stories being told of these eels making ladders to climb over stone walls. There are stories of them just crossing over dirt roads in like big long lines, kind of like eel over top of eel. And it, it again, it's this this thing in their brain where when they're returning back to the ocean, they just like, they'll do whatever it takes. So that's why you hear lots of these stories of them tra- traveling over land. And it also, so they live most of their life on land, anywhere from... 10 to 50 years and they could pick a place on land that is a pool of water like a pond but maybe that pond empties some portion of the year so there's stories of them being able to kind of dig a hole in the mud and kind of sit in the mud and go into a a tuper state right where they've slowed their metabolism down and kind of exist there until the rain fills the pond back up. And so because of that, they need to be able to do that respiration outside of water for a long period of time.
0: Wow, that, I had no idea about any of that. And I did a little bit of research on eels, and that just not come up. So that is amazing. Tell us why they're migrating back. And I know it's through with reproduction, but how does that all work?
1: Yeah, so it's probably good to kind of lay out this, the full life story. So eels... They are born in the middle of the ocean. There's a couple of spots around the world. In the Atlantic Ocean, it's the Sargazo Sea, a big place where there's lots of, you know, essentially sargassum, which is sea- a type of seaweed that floats. Both the American and the European eel are there. Somewhere in the Coral Sea, which we don't actually know right now, is where the Australian eels go or are, are born. They are born out of a broadcast spawn, which you know, your viewers probably know from listening to this podcast is when both the males and the females kind of just shoot it all out in the water, it mixes up, and then you get um, fertilized eggs. So you have this mass of millions and millions of fertilized eggs in the middle of the ocean, the little tiny larvae um, at this point, little tiny larvae that don't actually look like eels at all, and for you know a few hundred years... When scientists were finding the larvae, they actually didn't know that they were eels, and they identified them as a completely different species. Um, so they had no idea that this was the, the species for, for quite a long time, like hundreds of years. This was like a, this is a different species, and the eels magically appear somewhere. So you now have a bit of planktonic larvae, right? So they're not really moving much, and they're taking currents, and they'll take currents down. So they are very subject to the, the ocean currents, which, you know, it, when you're thinking about the endangerment of these species, changes in climates and currents can be a big part of that. They take these currents thousands of kilometers to some places, like they'll go very, very far, eventually reach, start getting closer to land, and they metamorphosize a first time. So their larval form looks more like a leaf. They metamorphosize to kind of look more eel-like, but they're still completely translucent. They'll reach the shores. They'll kind of climb over your estuary waters which can be big you know rock outcroppings and things like this to get into the more brackish freshwater areas they metamorphosize again so they start to take on pigments and now they're an elver which is the true juvenile eel before that they were you know their leaf form leptocephali their clear form are just called glass eels which is very apt and then they're now elvers they migrate upstream as elvers now, you know, put their pigments in their bodies, climbing up waterfalls. So there's stories of these little tiny, you know, a couple inch long eels climbing up massive waterfalls. And I've, in the places that I've lived, I've found eels up, you know, ten meter tall waterfalls. And I really cannot imagine how that works. I've never seen it climb a waterfall like that. I've seen them climb smaller waterfalls, but it's pretty unbelievable. They get to usually a more standing, so like a lake or a pond. And then they metamorphosize again. And now their uh, yellow eels is, is essentially the adult eel, the most of their life stage they spend. They live there for, like I said, 10 to 50 years. 20 is about our average time frame when we think it's, it's good to go. A switch flips in their brains. They metamorphosize one more time. So their whole life is metamorphoses. That last metamorphosis it makes their eyes change. So now they need to be able to see different sets of colors. Because you know living in freshwater, in the mud of freshwater, you don't really need to see that many colors. When you're swimming back in the ocean, you do need to see a lot more, be able to distinguish blue, so their eyes change. They lose the ability to eat. So hopefully they've put on a ton of fat, because they've got a really long, like mini month long journey. And then they just beeline it back to the back to the exact same location that they were born. And, you know, this is, again, thousands and thousands of kilometers away, down waterfalls, over roads, you know, hopefully not getting stuck in a dam, out into the middle of the ocean. They're swimming against currents in the middle of the ocean for months and months on end. And hopefully, and we don't know the numbers of this, but I imagine not that many of them make it back, but enough for a giant broadcast spawn. And it all starts all over again.
0: Wow, that is probably one of the most incredible animal migrations that I've ever heard about or anyone has ever yeah, discovered. Yeah, me too, lake. me too. <laughs> wow. I just have to ask, do they return to the same lake or river as their parents? Do we know that? Or how do they decide where to go? Is it smell, genetics?
1: It's that, I would list that as one of those big mysteries that we'll probably never know. But it's safe to say that in areas where eels are migrating out, eels do return. I can't say for sure whether or not those are genetically connected to those eels, and it would be very hard to measure. I'm sure there's a few scientists out there who are doing their best to figure that out. And that's what I love about eels is this is a space where if you're curious about them and you're passionate about science, there are research opportunities for you, and there will be for a long time. But in areas where eels are no longer migrating out, there is a indication that there are less eels migrating back. And that could just be because of, you know, the influence of dams, you know, are a big impediment to eel migrations on both directions. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who work on dams who are trying to do better. For example, in Tasmania, hydro they've been around for a really long time in Tasmania. They did not care about the eels when they first were putting in a lot of their dams. They are starting to care now. So they've put um, both a eel ladder, which is very similar to most um, fish ladders, which is essentially are like a, a couple of steps that have little, little tiny like mini waterfalls that makes it a little easier to climb up for the eels the, the little elvers, the little babies, and then eel bypasses which is essentially a giant hole in the dam that the eels can kind of find their way to and just be like shot out the dam so they don't get kind of trapped behind it so people are trying to do their best to kind of reduce that, but yeah there is an indication that um, once the population starts to go down, it, it only gets worse and worse over time.
0: Yeah, and, and we still don't know exactly where all the species of freshwater eel go in the ocean to breed, do we? Yeah,
1: no, it's spot on. And, you know, I said Sargasso Sea, uh, and that was only discovered in, the, in 1920, which I guess is, you know, 100 years old now, but that is relatively recent in the length of time that people have been talking about and thinking about eels. Sargasso Sea is a huge space of ocean Uh, if you look at a map it's a very large circle in the middle of the on you know towards the western side of the atlantic but it's a big area and we don't actually know the spot in there we just know we think they go in that space for the australian eels the Anguilla australis Only a couple of years ago have some scientists done some tracking, putting trackers on eels, which they admitted was very, very difficult because of the way that eels um, move in the ocean and their body types. They had eels that got close to the coral sea that made what was a giant circle only a slightly smaller circle. So... Every every year that someone tracks, you know, that size of where they are born and where they go to hopefully spawn and die gets smaller and smaller. But it's still, you know, a very large area of ocean. You know, the ocean is massive, is really massive. And when you start putting circles in it, it looks like, oh, that makes sense. But if, if you take a boat out there, you'd have no idea. And no one's ever actually seen an eel spawn event, as far as we know, there's no recorded uh, signs of this. All we know is Johannes Schmidt, who was the one who tracked them in 1920. He f- essentially was going in circles around the Atlantic for a really long time, just catching, and he'd catch adults and adults, adults, and then he'd catch this. By that point, we knew the the larvae were eel larvae, and then he'd catch some larvae in some spots, and he kept like, you know, doing some concentric circles and finding. Okay, well, we're still seeing eel like the adult eels going this way. But then we get to a certain point, and now there's no more adult eels going that way. So this that must be, like, the the territory. And so that, that's kind of this process of elimination to be like, okay, well, we know they're going from here and here, so this must must be the spot.
0: It's insane to think there's just such a, a mystery of, like, an animal like that. Because they go there, and then they spawn, and then they die, yep. don't they? That's part of yep. the reproduction. They only have one spawning yep. yeah. seed. Yeah,
1: so as soon as they do their broadcast spawn, it's sinking to the bottom of the ocean for them.
0: Yeah, and... So we talked a little bit like about eel conservation and eels in dams and rivers what kind of like ecological role do they play why why are eels important to the ecosystem Yeah
1: I there's a lot of ways that we can think about this, when they're living in their freshwater territories, um, they are carnivorous, so they're eating dead things and scraps and stuff. There's lots of stories of way back in the 1800s of when people were trying to catch eels, you could essentially just like throw a dead carcass in a body of water, and all of the eels in that water would come and start eating it, and then you could just like, scoop them up one by one. So they are really essential to kind of keeping those freshwater ecosystems intact. And, like a lot of migratory species, there is this um, transfer transfer of energy between you know the marine ecosystem and the freshwater and back that is really essential to how you know this planet is a water planet. The marine ecosystem is not separate from those freshwater ecosystems; we need those species who are moving in between them and bringing you know essentially just energy, whatever that looks like between those ecosystems and like for me, I think they are a very old species at, you know, 50 million years plus or minus. Um, they're pretty, they're, I would describe them as a pretty ancient species for us. And it's hard to measure what true role they play beyond like being a part of an ecosystem until they're lost. And there's lots of cultural stories and locations where we've seen eels start to really collapse, where people start to tell stories of other things that may or may not be related. So for example, I was living in the Marianas, which is an archipelago near the Marianas Trench, on a small island there. Many years ago, the Japanese came in, and the Japanese, the um, Anguilla Hapanaka, which is the Japanese freshwater eel, is um, critically endangered at the moment, primarily due to overfishing. Obviously, eel is a very big delicacy in Japan. Um, Lots of overfishing. They've obviously built lots of dams, too. So those are some of the two primary things that are hurting the eels that are threatened. The Japanese came to that area around World War II, also started harvesting a lot of the eels. Some of the local community were saying that when that was happening and the eel population started to look like they were starting to collapse, which now they seem to be fine as far as people tell, but no one's researching eels there specifically. So again, we don't actually know a lot but they were saying that some of the streams were stopping to flow and the idea was oh the eels they dig these holes through the streams and they'd help the water to flow so there's this you know cultural connection to these eels that have been part of that culture for you know a few thousand years and the idea of them going away was somehow going to create some sort of ecological impact beyond just the loss of the eel so it's hard to think like yes you know eels could just disappear and everything could be fine but you know the cultural connections are are really deep for for a lot of places um even if we don't realize or recognize
0: them yeah i mean that's that's fascinating especially about the stories of making the rivers because it's almost like a they're an environmental engineer in a way and you do see that with lots of lots of species so that's it's a, potentially a very, very important animal.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it could be part of like how they migrate upstream and how they migrate downstream. I can't say one way or the other um, how much true fact that is and how much it is just the, a, a cultural connection to the eel. But they are one of the few, if only species, who's doing that in a lot of places, who's taking this journey both directions, who's moving across these you know, these freshwater and marine habitats in that way. And it's hard to estimate, like, what role that actually plays.
0: Yeah, and I mean, they're, they are quite a large animal. So moving on mass, as you said, like a little bit of a group migration would, would probably, like, especially smaller rivers and streams, it's definitely possible. So I also want to touch on, because you're not an eel researcher per se. However, you do lots of amazing eel work. So tell us a little bit about the project that you work on with eels because it's it's quite different and quite awesome
1: yeah so as you can tell like you said i'm not an eel expert per se my research isn't predominantly about eels but i have when i move to tasmania and i often do this when i go to places is i find out what the eel is and i find out what everyone knows about the eels there and it is a Probably a strange hobby for someone to have. But I do recommend wherever you live to check out, like, what is the freshwater eel where you're at, if there is one. Um, There probably is, because they're most parts of the world. And so when I got here, I kind of was looking into them and got connected with a group called Where Water Meets. They're two musicians who do a lot of ecology-based music. Sometimes it's engaging with landscapes, it's engaging with scientists. And I connected with them because they were looking already looking into eels quite a bit. But they had only just started this. And when I connected with them, I essentially told them, I was like, look, I'm obsessed with this creature. I know so much about it. I'm going to dedicate a number of months figuring out about the history in Tasmania of eels. There's only been really one study of eels in Tasmania. And this project essentially has gone from, you know, just our group being very interested into a TEDx performance. Um, So we created this experience that has instruments that are made out of eel skin, playing sounds and telling the story, both this life cycle, as well as the the human eel connection in Tasmania, which the history of eels in Tasmania, I think, is equally as fascinating as the history of the eel life cycle itself. This project is, is ongoing, and we're hoping to get into schools and both talk about music and the fact that you can make an instrument out of eel skin which we've actually learned a lot about eel skins uh, as a feature um, in that process. They're, they're very, very unique skins that I think there's very limited research out there. And I, we can safely say, and we're hoping someone can challenge us on this, that we have the, the only eel skin instruments in the world because it's very difficult to do. So I don't recommend it. everyone go out and try to make eel skin instruments. And, you know, telling the story of the eels in a way that's creative, that has music, is an opportunity for us to engage with different audiences and and introduce the species in a way that challenges this norm of just like the scientific background. Science is great. You add a little bit of creativity, you know, like engaging in a, a podcast, adding some music, some art, is a really good way to get a species that, even in Tasmania, where the species has been here for as long as people have been here, there's a lot of people in Tasmania, when I talk to them, who don't even know eels exist here. And if they do, they know the little tiniest bit of information. And my hope is, and our hope of this project is to just get more people thinking and knowing and just having that curiosity about a species that obviously I'm terribly obsessed with.
0: Yeah, and because it is so hard, especially when it's not a super charismatic animal. So, you know, koalas, even though they have a lot of conservation challenges, people are interested and they're a bit more easily engaged, whereas eels tend to, like, they don't have this... Like charisma associated with them, yet hopefully, um, your work increases that. But what kind of instruments are you making from eel skin?
1: So the main ones were a violinization, which is a type of uh, guitar almost. So they are, you know, a stringed instrument. The same sort of, you know, wood bearings in it, so it can kind of stay together. They do play very similar to a violin and a guitar. Uh, the sound is is very unique. I'm not a musical expert, but my my collaborators talk about it all the time how they were so fascinated the sound that was coming out of it, how, you know, the reverberations and everything. There is something very unique about the eel skin in that regard. I would I think there is a whole research project out there for someone to kind of investigate that. Maybe me, maybe someone else listening to this podcast could be part there. It's kind of uh, surprising where we've gotten to with the project and, and working with instruments like that.
0: Ah, that's, It's just such a cool way to get the science and the information about these amazing animals out there. So just before we finish up, have you got any cool facts? I have one random fact about eels in general, but have you got any cool facts about freshwater
1: eels for us? Uh, I probably have an infinite number of, of facts, Aside from their just unbelievable uh, life cycle, I think the thing that truly surprises me most about eels is just their ability to do what they want to do. So similar to me telling the story of the eels climbing over walls, there's an urban legend which has been you know written about by numerous people for years which is humans have loved catching eels there's a lot of history in Europe of eels being this amazing delicacy everyone was catching them which is primarily one of the, the leading reasons why they're in da- the European eel is endangered when the, the people were in America started catching the eels there was this desire to start breeding them and you can tell from the life story you can't breed an eel and it's funny whenever i meet someone who's like oh let's just breed some eels and i'm like that's not how this works and so what, what people were doing, what some scientists were doing, was containing eels in big barrels, hoping that they could just like force them to breed on land. Because they're like, oh, we want to have a, an easier way. We don't just want to wait for them to return. Uh, and there's a story of this scientist who put all these eels in a metal container, locked it up, went away. This was he was catching them migrating downstream. He opened the thing up, and every single eel had killed itself. Because they were just so determined to escape this thing and go breed that it didn't matter what it was. And I think this is one of these things about a species that spends 50 years on land and then has this such immense desire to return home that it would even let itself die if it meant an opportunity to get back to the ocean. I think it's it's kind of, for me, a reflection of, as someone who's quite migratory, I'm from the US, live in Tasmania, I've lived so many other places, is thinking about this, this species that, you know, doesn't, I wouldn't. It's hard to describe what its home is. Is its home the place where it will hopefully die and then be born? Is its home the place where it's lived most of its life in this freshwater area? Is its home this sort of migratory pattern? And for me, that's kind of maybe the space where me and eels have kind of really bonded. Is this uh, question of what is home for an eel is the same sort of question I ask myself.
0: Yeah, wow. It just sounds a bit like a movie. Like the eels push to return home. I can just see them like, you know, the whole process. It would be... It would be amazing to be able to actually follow one one day as technology Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm hoping someone in Planet Earth or one of those uh, mega documentaries just gets so wholly obsessed that they're like, we're going to dedicate millions of dollars of, res- of, of resources to just get an actual video of them returning to the ocean and spawning. Because I think some some sort of investment like that is going to be our best bet to getting the footage and the sort of imagery that we would love to see.
0: I reckon it's a good idea because there's not that many mass migrations of animals that we know so little about and that we haven't like filmed in some way or or another like it's definitely worth pitching to them
1: (laughs) yeah that's the hope
0: yeah i my only i had two little facts one was Mm -hmm. that eels swim the same way as snakes i believe don't they but they're not related at all
1: they're not related at all and there's lots it's it's actually pretty funny if you look you know thousands of years ago people were very confused about eels. They've been described like worms. They've been called like snakes that have like some sort of mental problem. People just couldn't figure out where they were coming from and where they were going. So for, you know, for a few thousand years there, when humans were writing about eels, they were just very uninformed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I've read like they had all kinds of like confusion because they'd catch an adult eel that they'd be like, oh, it looks like 10 years old. It's quite big, but it would have no reproductive organs at all. And they just yeah yeah that
1: that would be so weird. Yep, yep. the The reproductive organs really only come into play in that last metamorphosis because it's not you don't need it for fifty years. You know, you only need it one point in your life. So why would physiologically you grow them? You know, ten years in when you're going to live fifty and get them later? It's just it would. You know, they've evolved in a way that's like very advantageous for them. You know, they've evolved from the 50 million years ago, they were probably only traveling a short distance, right? They started in the Coral Sea, which a lot of life in the planet kind of began in that area millions and millions of years ago, but they were probably only traveling a, a short distance. And as the, tr- the actual tectonic plates moved and the continents shifted their the distance that they travel got longer and longer. So they're, they have like the, this stubbornness where they wanted to keep doing the exact same thing they were doing, you know, spawning in the sea, living on there. They wanted to do that, and they didn't care that the continents were going to shift and move thousands of kilometers away.
0: Wow, that's such a cool evolutionary pathway. So they're migrating, you know, a couple hundred kilometers, and then over 50 million years, they end up migrating, and it just, yeah, evolutionarily selects for animals that can swim further and further and then they need to take longer and longer to build up the resources in the freshwater. Wow, that's, that's an amazing way to think about it. Wow. Well, my only other silly fact, and I read this and I had to share it because I was kind of blown away, is that there's no such thing as an electric eel.
1: The, the, <laughs> yeah, it's actually kind of funny. Um, in the 19, early 1900s, late 1800s, there was a lot of this conversation around like the quote-unquote electric eel being a source of power. Uh, So the electric eel is not actually an eel. They do look eel-like. I think eels are actually more closely related to something like the lamprey than they are the electric eel, um, which is one of those, you know, mysterious things where even the freshwater eels are not particularly closely related to marine eels. Evolutionarily, it's quite unique. Yeah, I think the electric eel is a whole other (laughs) avenue for people to explore. Maybe it's something worth renaming them to kind of give eels the credit they deserve.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be on a campaign now to stop people calling it an electric eel. (laughs) Well, thanks very much for being on the show. And if anyone wants to learn more about your project and about freshwater eels in general, where should they go? and What should they do?
1: Cool. Yeah. So you can find me on Mac likes the sea on most social media. I post pictures of nature stuff. Sometimes eels. Usually, you know, sometimes AI-generated eel imagery, which is kind of essential at this point because we don't have that many f- photographs of them. So anyone who's gotten has a photograph of an eel, I'd love to see. I'm always looking forward to things like that. You can also check out where water meets. Also on the socials, we do have our TEDx Hobart Performance up on youtube so if you search where water meets on tedx you'll probably find it pretty quickly it's about a 16 minute performance that uh i don't want to give too much away because it is kind of it is an experience to to see and if you get in touch you know we're, we're always doing some sort of social media around the eel stuff and i'm always happy to chat eels
0: well i strongly encourage everyone to check it out and i definitely will be well, thank you very much for being on the show, Malcolm. Yep, thanks, Matt. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. If you've liked the show, please jump on and give us a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Or jump onto our Patreon account, which is patreon.com slash Podcast. If you'd like to give a little monthly donation to help with the running costs of the show. Or we also have a Buy Me A Coffee page, which is buymeacoffee.com slash Testoni. And that's where you can give a one-off donation to also help with the running costs of the show. And a humongous thanks to all our Patreon supporters, Jared, Derek, Imogen, Bridge, Sally, Jeremy, Kelly, and Warren. Your support is hugely appreciated. And thanks to Steph T for buying us a coffee here at Sea Creatures Podcast. Production assistance by George McGrath and music by the talented, awesome and amazing Dan Musil. Visit our website, www.mtunderwatermedia.com for all things podcast-related and all the links I've just mentioned. If you've ever got any questions about the podcast or even have a cool guest that we should have on, head to our social media page, which is Seacreeches underscore podcast on Instagram or Seacreeches podcast on Facebook and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up next time on the Seacreatures podcast, we're going to be talking to Rachel Brooks, who's a marine artist all about basking sharks, which aren't actually scary at all. This has been the Secrets podcast over and out.